1: Hello and welcome to episode 136 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm now live as I'm back from holiday and I'm loving the cold, wet and miserable UK weather about as much as watching the Mighty Leeds United in the playoffs. Today's story from 2003 stretches from Scotland to the south coast of England and involves a very different sort of crime to the ones normally covered on this podcast and one I doubt we will cover again. But before we begin, I would just like to say a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially the recent joiners of this exclusive club. That is Claire Hewitt, Dominic Stevenson, Barbara Broaders, Vanessa Hanshaw, Donald McKinnon, Claire Barnes, Tim Wilson and Lauren. I'm so grateful for your support, I really am, and I hope you enjoy the 29 full-length bonus episodes, and other exclusive content. Thanks again. Before we begin, let's set some context and take a look at the music we were listening to, or not, in April 2003. Number one in the UK charts was Make Love by Room 5 featuring Oliver Cheatham, keeping Madonna with American Life from the Top spot. So what did you make of her at Eurovision then? Ah, of course. You have a life and you weren't watching it, were you? Silly me. In the US, 50 Cent with the Club was top of the charts and top of the Australian album charts was Delta Gudrum with Innocent Eyes. In the news this month, it was a significant time in the Iraq war as Baghdad was captured, leading to the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime two days later. The Treaty of Accession was signed in Athens, admitting 10 new member states to the European Union Patrick Roy played his final game in the NHL and 33-year-old Andre Agassi recaptured the number one ranking to become the oldest man in tennis to hold that position. And singers Little Eva and Nina Simone both succumbed to cancer in April 2003. When he was told he would be facing a charge of murder, 36-year-old Louis Gillies couldn't believe that this was happening. He wasn't a killer and this just couldn't be right. It made no sense at all. But his view was unimportant, his protests achieved nothing, and Louis was remanded in custody for his own protection and placed on suicide watch due to his vulnerable state of mind. Eventually, the charge was reduced from murder to aiding and abetting a suicide, still a charge that could lead to 14 years in prison, however. And just a few weeks later, he was finally released on bail. At least now Louis could return to the relative comfort of his flat in Glasgow, Scotland, although he did still have to report to a local police station on a regular basis. Just how had it come to this? After all, on the surface, Louis had everything gained for him in his life. He was a bright, popular and attractive young man who had studied philosophy at Glasgow University. Whilst there, he was a bit of a raconteur an old and older new friends heard stories about his childhood about his Greek mum and his wealthy sea-captain dad. He told vivid tales of being caught up in terrifying violence in Central America, and via his dad how Jackie Anassis had once bounced him on her knee. As you can imagine, some people bought these stories 100% and loved to hear him talk, some were a little dubious, and others just frankly found them damn right irritating bit like the reviews for this podcast, really. The Scotsman newspaper tells how Louis stood out at university for a number of reasons. He had a tendency to dress all in black, and in lectures and tutorials he would take copious notes into leather-bound notebooks, scribbling furiously so he didn't miss a thing. He played a high-profile role in the university philosophy society, and academically he wasn't adverse to being the centre of attention as he rocked up with copies of the classic philosophy texts in their original Greek, and he was constantly challenging the lecturers, letting nothing go. One contemporary said of him, Louis was intelligent, articulate and good company, but I would say he had a tendency towards self-obsession and often engaged in attention-seeking behaviour. In 1992, Louis expected to graduate with a first, but instead he and his classmates, were surprised and shocked to see that he only achieved a 2-2. He was embarrassed by this performance, as it didn't fit into the persona he had created for himself at all, but he explained that it was due to a logistical issue as he had turned up at the wrong examination hall. I wonder what was the real reason for this disappointing result? Was it overconfidence leading to a lack of preparation? Or in the same way that he regularly challenged lecturers, was he trying to be just a little too clever in his answers? But whereas for some where the pressure of getting the right results in education can be vital for future career success and financial rewards, coming from such a well-off family meant that this was not such an issue for Louis. One fellow student said, Louis never had to have his feet on the ground. There was always plenty of money. He never really had to work because his family could always bail him out of trouble. After university, Louis moved to Greece where he taught English as a foreign language. But after a while this wasn't fulfilling intellectually and so in 1999 he moved back to Glasgow where he lived in the top flat of what had once been the family's home in Bank Street. It was a faded terraced house in the heart of the city's student area. But again things didn't go to plan. He wasn't able to get his master's degree in IT Failing this course was a massive blow for him and he then found it hard to get a job of the substance that he felt he needed and he deserved. These setbacks led to his mental health declining and his friends say this is when his depression really started. And then there was a particularly messy breakup with a girlfriend and Louis's friends could see that his depression was deepening and worryingly he began to talk to friends of suicide. And this subject increasingly started to become an obsession, featuring in most of his conversations, and his friends became concerned about just how much he talked about ending his own life. As you'll probably know, there's been a lot of controversy about some of the suicide groups online over the last 15 years or so, which some argue glamorise suicide, or at the very least allow vulnerable people to research how to effectively end their own lives. Sometime in 2002, Louis discovered one of these groups, the Alternative Suicide Holidays, Ash as it was called, newsgroup, and he began posting as Leander from Greek mythology. As you will no doubt recall, <coughs> Leander fell in love with Hero and would swim every night across the sea to spend time with her. Hero would light a lamp at the top of her tower to guide his way. Their trysts lasted through a warm summer, But one stormy night, the waves tossed Leander in the sea and the breezes blew out Hero's light. Leander lost his way and drowned, and when Hero saw his dead body, she threw herself over the edge of the tower to her death to be with him. Some of the posts that Louis was making to the ash sites were normal stuff, such as his admiration for certain philosophers. But others were much more concerning and it appeared that the concerns of his friends that Louis might take his own life were valid. Let me share with you, as an example, three posts made by Louis in May 2002 to give you a flavour of how he was feeling at this time. May 20th I've gone to great lengths to let slip the bonds that bind me to society. I've quit my job, in acrimonious circumstances, no glowing references there, Pick feuds of all my friends and family, so that now no one actually talks to me. I've run up debts on both my cards and with the utility companies. They're all about to get cut off in the next two weeks, which I have no hope whatsoever, never mind intention of paying. The whole protective edifice that has shielded me from the world of the streets is about to come crashing down around my ears. And the next day, May the 21st. Ah, beachy head, where eternity is but one step, and six seconds away. No one has ever survived the full drop, though a few have fallen onto the numerous ledges that await to catch the unwary. Yep, a lot of folks have done the beachy head thing over the past century. I think the tally stands at over 1,200. Then on May the 26th, one of the great benefits which accrues from the decision to catch the bus this is Adam jumping in now to explain the term catching the bus, if you don't know, is suicide forum talk for killing yourself. Is the seeming total invincibility it gives you via via the concerns of day-to-day living. Everyday worries acquire their just insignificance in the face of one's imminent extinction. The satisfaction gained is almost addictive. I was left a portfolio of properties after my dad's death, five houses to be exact, which I now rent out. Now, as someone who owns a house knows all sorts of issues arise from time to time, from plumbing and appliance breakdown to new planning and safety regulations. These I had diligently and conscientiously dealt with in the time preceding my decision of suicide. Subsequently, I have been a right total asshole, and my inwardly my behaviour warms me no end. Another man active on the Ash forums at the time, was 35-year-old Michael Gooden from Camberwell, South London, who was known by the handle Assure Me." His messages on the forum suggested an obsession with the notorious suicide spot in East Sussex, Beachy Head. On the 23rd of November 2001, he described heading to Sussex to end his life but failing to do so. In a message to Ash he said, Maybe if I'd gone with someone who was of the same mind, the task would have been easier. Anybody wanting a partner to do the act with, please email me, as I'm so ready to go, but I'm just lacking in courage, courage that I feel I could get with support. But by January 2002, Michael seemed to have changed his mind about finding a partner, saying that this kind of agreement would give him a guilt complex, and insisting that he would be boarding the bus with a single ticket. But despite this post, Louis and Michael made contact with each other in January 2002 and agreed to end their lives together. On the 5th of June 2002, they agreed to meet in Eastbourne train station for the first time and then made the short trip to Beachy Head, where they had a last meal and a few drinks at the pub, the Beachy Head. They left the pub, crossed the road, and walked the 200 feet or so to the cliff edge, where they planned to end their lives. I can't help wondering just what they talked about whilst they were together at this time, can you? Towering over the English Channel at 152 metres high, the chalk cliffs of Beachy Head in Sussex are just utterly amazing. If you haven't been before, I suggest you please go. It's a stunningly beautiful place to spend time. But unfortunately this incredible place is also well known as a suicide spot with sometimes over 20 deaths a year despite the best efforts of the chaplaincy team who are there 24-7 and others who patrol the cliffs looking to prevent suicides and local taxi drivers and staff at local pubs who work with the local police to stop these deaths. But on that June afternoon as Louis and Michael walked to the edge of the cliff as the weather closed in on a murky day. Louis's phone rang, and thankfully he answered it. It was his best friend from Glasgow, Jonathan Caddy, who was so shocked when he realised what was happening, he later recalled, I told Louis how much I thought of him, that he was a fantastic guy, and he should not jump that night. During the ten-minute conversation, Jonathan Caddy managed to persuade Louis not to take his own life. Louis then passed the phone to Michael Gooden, but he was not so receptive, and after passing the phone back to Louis, he suddenly stripped down to his underwear and jumped over the cliff to his death on the rocks below. Michael was just 35 years old, and one of 17 people to take their own lives at Beachy Head in 2003. Louis made the long trip back to Glasgow on the train, stopping only at an internet cafe at London's Victoria Station to log on to the Ash site to say the following. I would just like to let you know that Assure Me has caught the bus. He was very determined, he did not flinch. He ran over the precipice in unbelievable meteorological conditions. Inspirational, poignant, mesmerising. I hope he has found peace. I think it's a very different reaction to if you or I had witnessed the horror of Michael's death. It sounds like exhilaration rather than shock, doesn't it? Some on the Ash site questioned why he hadn't followed and whether Louis was, after all, serious about killing himself. And the next day Louis lugged on to Ash again, this time describing in more detail why he had not jumped, saying I was going to jump too, but I'd never been there before and it was incredibly foggy and damp. I could make out some features a very, very long way down, and I could see the sheer sides of the cliffs disappearing into the whiteness. There was just a roar of the sea in the spooky lament of the foghorn, but there was very light wind. It freaked me out not being able to see the bottom. A friend of mine rang my mobile, just as he, I still don't know his name, or anything much about him, snapped the chip on his, and my friend was mortified at what was going on, shocked with both of us. He talked to my friend for about 10 minutes, and my friend tried to talk him down, but Assure Me was incredibly calm and focused on the deed. Twenty minutes later, as dusk fell, he stripped to his underclothes and he was gone. On the 7th of June, Michael's body was recovered from the sea near Eastbourne. A note found in his pocket had details of an internet cafe in London on one side, and on the other, Louis's phone number. Initially, police believed that the body found was that of Louis, and coroner's officers arrived at his door within 48 hours of the body being found with the intention of informing his relatives that he was dead. They were, as you can imagine, pretty astonished when Louis himself opened the door. But the police wanted to interview Louis as a witness to Michael's death. During a lengthy police investigation, Louis had been happy to admit his role in Michael's death. According to Sussex Police, he told them he had turned away to speak to a friend on his mobile phone and had not seen Michael Jump. But a police source said that his account of their final moments together were described in such a way that he must have seen Michael Jump. As Louis talked more about Ash and explained the suicide pact, detectives took the decision to arrest him on suspicion of murder before later changing the charge to abetting suicide. And as time went by, Louis reflected more on his life and what was now happening to him and the shock really hit him and he was dreading appearing in court to face the charges against him. He knew that although it was unlikely, he could still face 14 years in prison if found guilty. Louis withdrew further from the world, avoiding contact with friends more than before, and he became even more reclusive. On the 22nd of April 2003, Louis was due in court. When he failed to appear at Lewis Crown Court in Sussex, Judge Anthony Scott gall issued a warrant for his arrest. Strathclyde officers went to his flat in Bank Street, Glasgow later that day and there they found his lifeless body hanging in the hallway just behind the front door. A suicide note lay by his body. Louis Gillies was dead at just 36. Louis' defence barrister, Adrian Turner, was in Lewis Crown Court as news of his death reached the court. In a way, I was surprised that Louis killed himself, he said. Louis was a bright, articulate man who gave me very detailed instructions. I really thought he would want to tell the court exactly what had happened. But I understand there was a suicide note, and if I know Louis, he'd have provided a very lengthy explanation of his action. It was, the judge said in conclusion, a bleak end to a very bleak case. Many struggled to understand why Louis was ever charged, and wondered why the Crown would pursue a man who was clearly on the edge. QC Adrian Turner, his sister in his view, they acted in good faith, but others believed they were quite, quite wrong. No judge in the land would have sent him to jail for his role in this matter, said one legal expert to the Scotsman newspaper. At most, he'd have got nothing more than probation. There was no justification for this prosecution in terms of deterring other people. It served no retributive service. So, in what sense could it have been considered in the public interest? Defending their decision, a spokesman for the Sussex Crown Prosecution said We thought the charge against Gillis was the most appropriate in the situation. It is tragic when anyone commits suicide and feels they have a reason to kill themselves. But we believe we had a strong case and the judge had agreed with us. So what do you make of what we've heard today? There was so much we could talk about from this story, but as this is a crime podcast, let's briefly talk about suicide packs and the legality of pro suicide forums. Suicide packs have happened for thousands of years. So when one person survives, do they have any responsibility? for those who have killed themselves. Should Louis have been charged? I would suggest it was such a poor decision from the CPS, wouldn't you? If he hadn't faced criminal charges, would he still be with us today, I wonder? And what of sites like Ash? Are they illegal? Well, after this and other cases, implicating Ash as potentially contributing to suicides, Ash is now no more but there are plenty of other similar places available online to discuss the merits of different suicide methods. The philosophy of Ash and others like them is that everyone has the right to take their own life, so no one tried to talk anyone out of committing suicide and no one contacted the authorities. Instead there is strong evidence that via contributions to the forum, the act of suicide was glorified, portraying it as an exhilarating experience. But although Ash is no more, you can still find posts from Ash on other websites easily enough. And despite the fact that bigger search engines promise to self-regulate, ensuring that support sites such as the Samaritans are at the top of the list when certain words are keyed in, pro-suicide sites can easily still be found. And I guess it's naive to think otherwise and impossible to stop similar sites arising when there is a demand the internet will deliver. And this is always going to be a danger for people at vulnerable time in their lives. But hopefully, issues around mental health will continue to be higher profile and talked about much more openly, meaning that there will be less tragic stories like the one we've heard today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this case and any other aspects of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group to join almost 3,000 of us. You'll be made very, very welcome. And to be even more rock and roll and to support this podcast, please head to patreon.com slash crime. where for the price of a soggy sausage roll and a tepid coffee a month, you can listen to 29 bonus episodes plus lots of other exclusive content. In essence, it'll make your life better whilst enabling me to keep producing this top quality, (laughs) I know, content every week. So I'm off to read the latest tedious objections to my planning application. Why did nobody ever tell me that applying for planning is just so much fun and a great way of getting to know new people online? Ah, the joys. Living the dream. Well, on that bombshell, have a good week. Take it easy. Of course, avoid a picnic table on a Saturday afternoon. Say hi to the sauna crowd from me if you're in Rochdale. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio